Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and you're listening to But That's Another Story from Macmillan Podcasts. This is another episode partly recorded from my home in New York City as we all shelter in place. So please forgive me if it sounds a little rougher than usual. Today, I'm going to start with a quote from the novel Chelsea Girls by Eileen Miles. She wrote, If there is something I will always carry in my heart, it is this earnest unwillingness to be part of the bunch. And recently, I talked about alienation, sexism, fighting bullies, and book publishing with today's guest. I'm Emily Gould, and I'm a writer. Emily Gould was also one half of the duo behind Emily Books, a widely admired indie publisher, alongside her best friend Ruth Curry. Emily has written three books. Her latest is a novel called Perfect Tunes, which is out on April 14th. Before becoming an author, Emily worked with me for three years, so I'm incredibly excited to sit down and chat with her. I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is right outside D.C. It's a pretty, you know, any you could be anywhere in America kind of suburb. What was your character like as a kid? like a pretty tough kid um, for my parents to handle. Sort of a know-it-all with a tendency to be mean um, and a little bit of a, you know, pushy, bossy older sister for my um, younger brother. I was always dressing him up in girls' clothes uh, and, like, making him play, like, whatever game I wanted to play. That's just the liability of having an older sister who's four years older than you, though. What uh, what kind of grief did you cause your parents? I was sort of a troublemaker. I would do things like I would uh, put up posters in the hallway of my elementary school because I didn't like a particular teacher, and I thought that that teacher was doing a bad job. Um, and... I got really upset about what I perceived to be sexism at one point in, like, fourth grade and watched some sort of, you know, campaign with, like, pamphlets that I made about I don't even remember what um, what horrible events I, w- I was protesting. What about your reading life? Were you a big reader as a kid? Oh, yeah. I My mom tells stories about me ignoring kids who she would set up playdates with. And I would just be like in the corner reading a book, which is very classic, like proto writer story. Um, It's funny. I don't see that tendency in either of uh, my kids. I mean, they don't they're too young to actually know how to read. (laughs) But um, but they're like more naturally extroverted, I think, than I am. What were the books that you first remember as being books you loved? Oh, um, I'm actually reading them to my to my older son now. Um, the Tintin graphic novels. I my grandparents had a big stack of those, and I um, have always loved graphic novels. And I, yeah, I started reading those books when I was like three or four. Like I was, I pretended that I knew how to read them, and then I eventually learned how to read and started reading them. And what about uh, chapter books or young adult books when you got a little bit older? I had an English teacher in sixth grade who was 
um, really, really nice and sweet and would just like let me read as much as I wanted to because she was could tell that I was kind of bored. But the books that were around in her classroom were like all series books. So I read every single Babysitter's Club book, every single R.L. Stein book, like the Goosebumps series. <laughs> like I think eventually I moved on from there to weightier <laughs> books. But <laughs> yeah, I, wasn't, I wouldn't say I was like an intellectual. I was just like a voracious reader who would read pretty much anything. What about mentors? Who were your mentors growing up? Oh, um, hmm. Well, when I was 14, I um, was friends with this boy named Rory Cowell. And uh, for my 14th birthday, he I had a record player, and he gave me the split seven inch of Bikini Kill's LP. Um, and then I got really into Bikini Kill, and, like, I would say, like, Kathleen Hanna really did change my life as, like, a young teenager, just as as an example of someone who was just like completely forthright about saying what was on her mind and call and calling out things that I had never heard anyone talk about openly before, like uh, sexual violence and just the sort of condition of being a woman in the world. You probably know Bikini Kill as I, like I don't actually the, know. Can you explain? I don't I don't know them at all. Um Bikini Kill was um, pro- is probably the best known Riot Girl band. Um, Riot Girl was the movement that was started in the Pacific Northwest. There were also offshoots of it in the DC hardcore scene. Not to like drill down too deeply into <laughs> the Wikipedia entry for Bikini Kill, but it was like a lot of screaming and like maybe not playing your instruments particularly well, but just having like like funny, true, not a premium placed on uh, musical virtuosity kind of music. Yeah. And, z- and zines. And, and there was a lot of like zine culture around this. And I also had a zine as a teenager. These were sort of like proto-blogs that people had in the 90s. What was your zine called? It was a comic book zine called Super Emily that was like a superhero version of my own like life and exploits. I'm not actually really that good at drawing, but I continued doing it for a pretty long time. And I would just Xerox it and hand it out in, like, the halls of my high school. What's something that Super Emily did? <sighs> um, I'm trying to remember. Oh, man. Um, she was not, like, the best feminist ever. She would often have, like, vendettas against, like, other girls <laughs> that she would then enact. <laughs> but also just thinly veiled versions of people who I, like, had some sort of beef with would, like, get their comeuppance, but in a very, like, stylized, like, cartoony way. Yeah. Emily went on to study at Kenyon College before leaving to attend the new school in New York. After she was finished with school, she stayed in New York and soon found a book that would resonate deeply with her as she was figuring out what to do next. I was about 23, and I'd graduated from college and was just kind of spending a lot of time in, in Williamsburg, not really, you know, it's like waiting tables, and I didn't really Williamsburg, know Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Yes, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I, I didn't, not colonial Williamsburg, Virginia. And I didn't know, um, you know, what I, what I was going to do next. And um, I went to... Uh, Spoonbill and Sugartown, which is a used bookstore that also has new books, the like new books in the front, used books in the back. And I was sifting through the shelves, like looking for a bargain. And 
I found this copy of uh, Chelsea Girls that um, I think it stood out to me because it had a really interesting cover. It was sort of a, it was sort of a nubbly um, material. <laughs> that it was made out of and then I opened it to start paging through it and a letter fell out of it and the letter was from Eileen Miles. Eileen Miles is the author of the autobiographical novel Chelsea Girls and also a prolific poet, playwright, and performance artist. And it was addressed to the director of the creative writing program at the school that I had just graduated from. Which was the new school. Yeah and and uh sort of asking in a roundabout way for a job or like maybe there are jobs available type of thing and I was so scandalized by the existence of this letter and that it had come in, it had come into my possession <laughs> I don't think I had ever read anything that was written in such a frank and straightforward style before some of the the sections are very very short um, maybe even only a like a page or two long, because Eileen Miles primarily is a poet. So this is like a poet's conception of what an essay could be, and um, they would just sort of be notes on a particular experience, an experience that could be as specific as like waking up and making eggs in the morning, or like uh, one particular drunken night in Provincetown with a bunch of like, you know, queer friends who are all like having sex with each other in some combination are all like you know drunk and fighting all the time um you know sort of ordinary experiences I guess in Eileen Miles's life but they seemed really extraordinary to me <laughs> you know at 23 you think every book is a letter that the author has written directly to you with you in mind only uh, so I guess that's probably how I was thinking of it. <laughs> Here's where Emily and my paths crossed. She came into my office one day for an interview that I'll never forget, and that would result in us working together for three years. Emily quickly moved up the ranks at the publishing house where we worked. I was an associate editor. Um, I was acquiring my own books. I had my own office. Um, I had a corporate card. Things were going very well in my publishing assistant career and I and I was 25 and I thought eh, might as well just like light this all on fire <laughs> you know um, in order to work at a website called Gawker which in later years would go on to become a real news organization with um, you know, robust protections for its employees. And then it would get, um, you know, all kinds of other stuff would happen. It no longer exists, which is actually really sad and, and horrible. But at the time that I worked there, it was just a blog run by this uh, British former journalist with an exceedingly large head named Nick Denton and a few like of his evil henchmen and me. So uh, you go to work for Gawker, mm -hmm. and you're there for how long? Exactly one calendar year. <laughs> and why did you leave, and what did you leave to do? Um, I quit in a huff because I uh, had sort of discovered that working at Gawker was, like, corroding my soul and, like, maybe doing something bad to the world in general. Hadn't quite figured out what it was that was bad about it yet, but... Gawker, when it began, I think, was felt it felt itself to be like this 
David versus the media Goliaths of the time. And really during the year that I was working there, it was sort of a like frog in a pot of water that's slowly boiling situation was happening around me like really incrementally. And I almost didn't notice it until it was, you know, too late. Um, that that balance was shifting and that I had started out feeling like, oh, I'm speaking truth to power. And as things progressed and then after I stopped working there and found myself like sort of on the opposite side of it, (laughs) it became more apparent to me that sometimes when you think that you are fighting bullies, you are actually like being a bully. Suddenly, Emily was a free agent. When we come back from the break... She takes the leap to become a memoirist and starts her own business. We're back from the break. We left off with Emily leaving Gawker, but she didn't depart without a plan. She'd been thinking about writing a proposal for a book of autobiographical essays, which would be titled, And the Heart Says Whatever. I sold a book for like $200,000 and then the book was published into the financial crash. And so the publication of the book was not a huge success. So and it is fair to say, isn't it, that of a $200,000 advance, 30 goes to your agent, you're down to 170, half goes to the tax man, so you're down to 85. um, And that needs to support you for the two or three years that you work on it when it's published. So actually, for listeners, they hear the $200,000. But in fact, you know, I'm not asking for anyone to feel sorry for you, but (laughs) the reality was that it was um, about your entry-level salary in a book publishing company. Yeah. So my first book, tanking financially and also like really alienating me temporarily, thank goodness, but like really alienating me from my parents, my family. What Um, didn't they like about the book? I was mean to my mom in it. (sighs) I was mean to my mom in it. Yeah. Full stop. I was mean to my mom. I lost the ability that I had always had to just write about myself without overthinking it. Um, write in the first to write in the first person without belaboring it. Um, and so I started to write in the third person just as an exercise to sort of try to trick myself into writing again because for a while I wasn't writing at all and I was just um, temping and do, you know doing taking whatever jobs I could to make ends meet. And once I got to about like fifty or sixty thousand words, I showed it to my then boyfriend, now husband, and he said, you should keep going with this. This absolutely could be a book someday, but you have to keep going. Emily's first novel was called Friendship and featured two women navigating their way into adulthood. Her new book is a multi-generational novel with a songwriter at its center. It's called Perfect Tunes. Perfect Tunes is my attempt to write about a mother and daughter relationship without directly writing about my own relationship with my own mother, which historically has not gone well for me and which I'm actually not brave enough to attempt yet. (laughs) Perfect Tunes is the outgrowth of years of introspection. But to understand how Emily found her way here, we have to go back to when she first began writing fiction. I knew it was going to take a long time because I'd never done it before. And I had no 
I had no sense of how long it might take, but I knew that it could potentially take years. And also that it, that no like big payday was probably on the other side of that. Um, so I needed something else to do. And um, that was when I asked my best friend to start a business with me. So I was like, I have this great idea. Um, ebooks are on the rise, but there's no independent um bookseller who's selling who's selling ebooks and I just want to put together a list of like the books that we know that are sort of our cult classic favorites that we want to make sure that they're available in that format because a lot of them weren't available as ebooks um and so we started doing a book of the month club that we distributed to our subscribers um every month we would send them electronically a, a new book and we would surround it with sort of essays and little new introductions and things. And it, so it, it really busied us with this exciting project of constantly reading and trying to find new books to send to our subscribers. And we kept doing that for a pretty long time, uh, like four or five years, I think. Yeah. And then and then eventually we um, decided that we needed to start actually publishing books. And so we went into business with Coffee House Press and we started publishing uh, we published two books a year with them for another handful of years. Was Chelsea Girls in your mind at all when you were trying to decide what kinds of books to seek out and publish? Oh, yeah. Well, the the second book that we did when we were doing Book of the Month uh, was Inferno by Eileen Miles, which actually has a lot of shared DNA with Chelsea Girls because Inferno is a novel, but it it's almost a more fully realized, like a more mature writer's take on some of the same material. Emily has come a long way from that fateful day she found Eileen Miles' letter in Chelsea Girls. She carries with her its lessons on being radically true to yourself and fighting the status quo. I wish that at every point I had been less concerned with pleasing people and had been just like truer to myself and truer to my gut, my intuition, like in ev- in every situation. It's almost inevitable to get um, trapped in situations that aren't like serving you or really anyone else because you want that like pat on the head of approval. Where did that come from, the desire for the approval? I'm a Libra. I don't know. (laughs) Is this therapy? (laughs) Do I owe you $125? (laughs) Um, No, I, doesn't everyone have that a little bit? I think the people who like don't have it at all might be like full on sociopaths. So Mm. are you getting better about that as you get older? Yeah, and actually the great gift of of having kids is that you just don't have time to be as uh, much of a people pleaser just because you're like, well, I only have like five hours and this I'm going to use them for me (laughs) and I'm going to say no to the stuff that I don't really want to do because I don't really want to do it. Now we're going to go to the lightning round. What's your favorite library in the world? Oh, the Pratt Library. That's so easy. The um, the university library. Why? 
It has those beautiful Tiffany stacks with the glass floors. I've also just spent so much time there over the years. It like has, it's one of the places that I know that I, if I really, really need to get work done and I'm on deadline, I can like cloister myself there. I can just like get a giant coffee, go to the Pratt Library and like stay there until I'm finished. What would you be if you weren't a writer? Um, like an esthetician. I love like popping zits. <laughs> no, I don't know what. I mean, isn't that really what a writer is? Uh, I mean, if only. <laughs> like, the satisfaction, it's just not there most days. <laughs> uh, what is something that you can't write without? Any rituals? Um, yeah, like adequate child care. <laughs> <laughs> if you could be any character in a book, who would you be? I don't really want to be a character in a book. Can, <laughs> I, can, can I be myself? You can be yourself. <laughs> <laughs> But That's Another Story is produced by Christy Westgard. Thanks to Emily Gould. If you'd like to learn more about the books we've mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. You can also find a transcript of this episode and past ones on LitHub. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstory at macmillan.com. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.